Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's football season, so I thought I'd start with a football illustration. Have any of you uh, heard of Andre Haysworth? He's a little bit of a... uh, The older guy remembers it in the back there. Yeah, Andre Haysworth, 2002 NFL draft. He was considered one of the top players to be drafted in the NFL. 315 pounds, had never even worked out for the NFL, and he still had stats of a bench, a lift, a sprint that were off the charts. Every single team wanted to get him. He went in the first round of the draft, as I said. Went to the Tennessee Titans, and everything looked good for him. But a few years later, he was considered the all-time worst NFL free agent draft in history. What led to him from going to the top to the bottom? From being considered one of the best to being considered one of the absolute worst? See, there was something going on in his life that the coaches couldn't see, but it made all the difference. What this was actually came out publicly in a game. It was uh, the Dallas Cowboys versus the Tennessee Titans. The Dallas Cowboys were winning. Um, Albert or Andre Garrard, who was the Dallas Cowboys center, he had fallen to the ground, and Albert Haysworth came up to him, literally tore his helmet off, and then with his cleated foot, all 317 pounds of him tried to stamp right on Andre's face. The first strike of his cleat missed, but the second strike of his cleat didn't. Narrowly missing Andre's eye, leaving massive cuts on Andre's face and 30 stitches. After the game, they asked Albert Haysworth, why did you do that? What possessed you? And his answer was, I'm proud. I don't like to lose. It was pride. Pride in his life that moved him from one of the top men in the NFL to one of the absolute bottom men in the NFL over the next few years. Now, pride it doesn't just destroy the life of football players, but pride can subtly slip into your life and mine, and pride can destroy you and me. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as a church, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, We're currently in the second half of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is trying to consistently explain to his disciples why he came. And we're in a section of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9 through Mark chapter 11, where Jesus is spending sort of extended time teaching his disciples. Because what's going on is Jesus at this point only has six months or less to live. So Jesus is spending all of the time he can to try and teach his disciples train his disciples, and help them understand why he came and how to prepare for life after he is gone. Now, in this section that we just began studying last week, Jesus is giving his disciples, and ultimately us, through those disciples, a number of lessons on what it means to live for him and follow him. Last week, we had the first lesson. It was a lesson on how to live by faith. Remember that with the father and the little demon-possessed boy? You know, don't be too proud to pray. 
Have faith in me and call on me, and I will come to help you. But as we continue, what we find is today, Jesus is going to give us a lesson on pride versus humility. Then next week, Jesus will give us a lesson on the seriousness of sin. The following week, Jesus will give us a lesson on divorce and remarriage. The week after that will be Jesus' lesson on the importance of caring for the weak and the vulnerable. The week after that will be Jesus' lesson on money and true wealth. The week after that will be Jesus' lesson on leadership. And then he'll return to a lesson on how to live by faith. Once again, with uh, the story of blind Bartimaeus. That'll bring us to Mark chapter 11, where Jesus is in the triumphal entry, and he's literally in the very last week of his life. So I give you that little bit of an overview to help you understand what's in front of us for the next few weeks. A lot of exciting stuff, a lot of practical stuff as Jesus prepares his disciples how to live for him after he is gone. But today, we are actually uh, on this lesson of pride and humility and the danger of pride and the importance of cultivating humility. So let's go ahead and turn to the key text that we're going to be studying. We'll read it together, and then we'll study it. So turn to Mark chapter 9. We're in verses 30. We're going to read down to verse 41. When you have it, please stand out of reverence for the very Word of God. Just follow along in your copy as I read it to you. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That ends the reading of the word of God. You may be seated. Now, it may not appear this way, but all of these verses deal with the topic of pride and humility. At the very beginning, Jesus gives us an example of what, pro, or what humility looks like in his own life. 
And then after that, Jesus goes on to teach us principles, or you could call it precepts, about the way pride and humility work in us and with our relationships. So if you have your outlines, let's go ahead and dive in at the top here. Jesus' life shows us an example of what humility looks like. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. It begins by saying, Jesus, or they went on from there. Whenever you see the word there is, you have to ask yourself, where is the there talking about? And if you've been with us for previous weeks, you know that Jesus has taken his disciples up to the area of of Caesarea Philippi. Go ahead, Jeremy, and put that map up there. Uh, That's about 25 miles north uh, of the Sea of Galilee. There, even a little further north, is Mount Hermon, which is most likely where Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain there, where he was transfigured. Then last week we saw when they returned to the bottom of the mountain and the remaining nine apostles. And we saw the story of the father with the little demon-possessed boy that we studied. Now they have begun to return back to the area of Galilee, back to Capernaum. Now I put on the map a dotted line, which you can see is the normal travel route that was done in that day and is still done today when people travel between these locations. But to be honest, I'm not too sure if that is the route that Jesus took. Because what it says in the text is he did not go through the populated places. He didn't go where most normal people did. This could be an occasion of what we call off-road Jesus where he took the back roads because he's trying to train his disciples and he doesn't want people to interrupt him from that, to distract him from that. It's a little bit like when you and I go to Walmart and our spouse has told us to go run in there, get some eggs and get back home in a hurry. What do we do? Like hoodie on top of our head, you know, keep looking at the floor, hope we don't see anybody we know, Not that we don't care about them, not that we don't like them, but we really just don't have time to talk to them. So this is a little bit like Jesus making a quick run to Walmart here. He has to focus on his disciples and he can't be distracted by other people at this time. So what was he teaching? Well, what we're seeing in this this study, he's teaching them a variety of things, but the main thing he keeps teaching them again and again is that Jesus, he says, I am going to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer, where I'm going to be rejected by the chief priest, I'm going to be rejected by the scribes, I'm going to be rejected by the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leadership. There I will die and rise again in three days. We've already seen in Mark that uh, Jesus has told this very clearly to his disciples once. This is the second time he tells this to his disciples. He'll tell this to his disciples again a third time very clearly in Mark chapter 10. And if Mark records Jesus saying this very clearly to his disciples three times, you can bet that since Mark only has a limited amount of what Jesus said, 
that Jesus actually told this to his disciples a lot more than three times. He kept trying to drive this into their head so they understand that he has come to suffer, die, and rise again. The problem is the disciples are dumber than a block of wood. No matter how many times he says this, it just does not penetrate their thick noggin. And you start to say, why? Why don't they understand? I think there's a couple reasons. One is I just think it's just hard to uh, sort of intellectually understand. Like imagine that if I said to you, hey, I'm going to go to Mankato. There, um, you know, some people are going to reject me. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise again in three days. You're going to look at me and go, yeah, right. <laughs> Next question, move on. It's like the idea that somebody would die and predict it and then rise again, it just, it's hard to intellectually understand. Secondly, it's hard for them to emotionally understand. You know how much they love Jesus? They've been with him for two and a half years. They dearly love Jesus. He's provided for them. The idea of the one that is the, who is the Christ, suffering and dying, emotionally it's just too much for them to absorb. So when he says this, it's sort of like somebody you love telling you that they've came down with cancer. It just doesn't want to absorb inside you. It's too big and too of a loss. But there's a third reason I think it's pretty interesting to know. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit kept this fuzzy in their hearts. The Holy Spirit didn't actually allow them to fully comprehend what he said. You say, really? Let's look at the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke. And they did not understand this saying. For it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So even though Jesus is repeatedly telling this to them, and they're hearing the words, they're remembering the words, the Holy Spirit is not allowing them to fully comprehend the gravity of the words at this time. After Christ rises from the dead, all of a sudden everything goes crystal clear. All of a sudden it starts to make sense. But the Holy Spirit is holding them back from fully understanding the future, even though he is given them clear directives about how the future would unfold. You know why he's doing that? I think that's because the Holy Spirit's merciful. If they fully understood the gravity of what was about to happen, they would be completely heartbroken at this point. Some people say, well, I, I would love to know the future. It would remove all kinds of ambiguity in my life. If I just knew exactly what was supposed to take place, uh, then I could completely plan for the future. I'd be able to plan, prepare for the future. It would be all good. But here's what I want to tell you. God in His mercy has not revealed to us everything about the future. He's revealed some things prophetically, but a lot of things He's kept hidden. And that's because He's merciful and kind to you and me. Imagine if you knew that... Uh, you were going to die at age 70 in a horrific house fire and be burned alive. But you knew that was going to happen when you were at age 20. What would the next 50 years be like? How well would you sleep for the next 50 years? 
That's right. I wouldn't sleep well either. So God in his mercy does not tell us all the details of the future. And that's what it's going on here. And that's what's going on with, the, with these apostles at this point. They're hearing the words, very specific details about what will happen, but the Holy Spirit is not allowing them to fully comprehend the gravity of what is about to happen until after he rises from the dead. And all of a sudden, now I get it. But the main thing to understand here is what Jesus does at this point. Jesus is providing the most incredible example of what humility looks like. Remember who Jesus is? The book of Hebrews in chapter 1 says that he is the one who created the entire universe. Here he has humbled himself to take on a human body. Here he is going to go uh, into Jerusalem and he is going to die in our place for our sins. He's not going to just die any death. He is going to die what at that time is considered the most horrific death ever created by mankind. And he doesn't just die that death, but he dies that death having absorbed all of, his, all of our sin into him to suffer that incredible amount of pain. But why is he doing it? Did he have to do it? Absolutely not. He did it out of the will of the Father, and he did it out of love for you and love for me. He humbled himself didn't insist on his rights as being the the son of God, but gave up his rights as the son of God to be the sacrificial lamb to die for you and me. That is what humility looks like in action. That is the poster child of humility that we follow. Now as Jesus continues, he moves from giving himself as an example of humility to actually principles about humility and, the, and, and, and pride and how it works. Number two, Jesus warned about the dangers of pride and the payoff of humility. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Remember what Capernaum is to them. It's home base. It's that uh, northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Peter had his house. We learned earlier in the Gospel of Mark, it was a large house. It was the place that was Jesus' base of operation. It's where James and John and Peter's brother Andrew also served as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. It was where Matthew had been the, the tax collector. So this is exciting for them. They're all back home. And they're all back in uh, Peter's house. But then Jesus starts to pry a little bit. We had a long walk, guys. It was a, a backwoods walk, 25 to 30 miles. If you guys were talking about something, uh, what was it? Of course, Jesus knows. But they're too ashamed to say. Because they were having an ugly discussion. A, a, a godless discussion the kind of discussion that you hope grown adults don't ever have between them. Which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is the goat greatest of all time? Peter, James, and John, well, they're pretty good. They got taken up the mountain by Jesus. 
And Peter's like, and I even talked on the mountain. I'm better than you are. And you can see they're like chickens, putting themselves in a pecking order. Who is going to be the greatest among them? Where is this coming from? Pride. It's coming from the pride of their own hearts. And here we find is our first lesson of what pride does to us. Pride ruins relationships. Pride ruins relationships. How are they talking to one another? It says they were arguing with one another, not getting along with one another. Pride ruins friendships. Pride always starts in the heart, but it always leaks into the life. And when it does, it destroys our relationships with other people. Because pride makes us come across to others as critical of them. Pride makes us come across to others as judgmental of them. Pride makes us start looking down at people, rather than in humility looking straight across at people. Now this debate that they've begun about which one is the groat, which is the best of them, doesn't end here. You'd think it would end there, but it continues for quite some time. In fact, when you get into the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed, do you remember what the disciples were arguing about around the table? Who's the greatest? And what does Jesus do at that time? He gets up, takes off his clothes, puts a towel around him, and proceeds to wash their feet. He takes the job of being the absolute lowest servant in the room and in humility takes and washes the dirt and gunk from the road that was all over their feet that had sunk in between the sandals. And then he says, and I'm giving you an example that you should follow. That's in Luke 22, verse 24, if you want to look that up sometime. But this idea about who is the greatest, it doesn't end, it just keeps going on. Now, pride doesn't just ruin friendships as we start to look down at others, but pride actually also ruins marriages. Many people get married, and the reason they get married is they think, well, this spouse will make me happy. This spouse is there to meet my needs. It's all about me and what I want out of this marriage. That's pride. That's pride showing up. Humility says when you get married, it's not about you and meeting your needs. Humility says, I'm marrying you to sacrifice of myself to meet the needs of you, not to meet the needs of me, first and foremost. You put the other person humbly in front of yourself. Think about the vows of marriage. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, till death do us part. You know, you can see when pride shows up, when you end up in marriage counseling, when the couple comes in and the one person says, you know, I don't deserve to be treated that way. I deserve something better than this. What is that? Pride. Where in humility says, it's not what I deserve. It's I want to humbly lay my life down to serve you. Now, uh, pride, it's the fastest thing that'll send you to a divorce court. Humility 
It's the secret of what will make your marriage last the long haul. So pride, or, so pride ruins relationships. It ruins friendships. It ruins marriages. And honestly, pride ruins churches as well. See, some people say that to have a successful church, you need to have really good music. You really have to have really good children's programs. You have to have really good a Bible study or, or Bible teaching. But there's something else that you really need to have a healthy church. It's called humble people. Prideful people will kill a church. Humble people will grow a church. Well, how does this come out in everyday life? Oftentimes, it has to do with our schedules. Prideful people will say, you know, I can't flex my schedule. I'm too busy to allow other people into my life because my needs and my schedule comes first. But humble people will say, you know, I can flex my schedule. I can move things around because you come first. Others come first in front of your own schedule and your own wants, and your own needs. When a church is filled with humble people who are willing to make time for others, to serve others and love others, the church grows. When a church is filled with prideful people who hold their schedules over other people's needs, the church will die. There's no way about it. I'll give you an example. About three years ago, we moved from our former house to our current house, and we moved at the absolute worst time of the year. October. Because in October, everybody is busy with school sports. Everybody is busy with their schedules. Like, you're just packed on your calendar. But there were some people in October who put aside what was on their schedule and said, we're going to put aside our plans to help you in your time of need. And because I knew they sacrificed their schedule to help us in our time of need, it's one of those things where it endeared them to our heart forever. Because in humility, they thought of others as more important than themselves. Now, this idea of being humble and flexing our schedules, it's not just for times when we're in crisis, but it should be something that's an everyday part of how we live and work in our church life. Because sometimes what happens is we, we come to church, say, okay, I've got my church done. Now I can get back to my day. I can get back to my schedule. I can get back to my life and all the things that I have planned to do today. When reality is, come to church and it's not about my day. It's God's day. It's not about my schedule. It's God's schedule. It's not about my life. Really, I live to bring glory to Him. And sometimes you'll come to church and you'll see some people that are out in the foyer and you're like, you know, I could talk to them, but I really want to get back to my life. What is that? It's pride. Placing the importance of our schedules over other things. Where humility says, I'm going to place the needs of people. People they may not even know. People that I should really give my time to over the things that I want to do and in my life. So, here's my challenge. As a church, I want to challenge us to not be prideful people. I want to challenge us to be humble people when it comes to relationships and when it comes to our schedules. I'd like to challenge us not to say um, in pride, I have to always get back to my life and my schedule, but I'm willing to flex my schedule 
to meet with other people, to see other people, and put relationships with them above the things that I want to do. Now, let's move on from there. Pride ruins relationships. Pride also takes away honor. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, proud people, they they like to be first. Proud people like to be recognized. And Jesus says, you want to be first? You want to be in first place? Here's the way you get to first place. You go to last place, and then you start serving others. Not just serving others who are above you, but you serve others who are below you. In this world, greatness is found in the title of your door. Does it say CEO? In this world, greatness is found on the size of your paycheck that you take home. But in God's eyes, greatness is not found in how high up the ladder you climb. Greatness is found in how low down the ladder you are willing to go to serve others. Doing what is not necessarily our jobs, but it'd be a way to serve and bless someone else. Here's a silly example. We have the, the coffee bar. Love the coffee bar. For some reason, we ended up with garbage cans that maybe are a little too small by the coffee bar. Now, sometimes we end up going out there by the coffee bar and between services, and the garbage can is not just full, but it's turned into a, a life-size Jenga game. It's about this tall, or people are stacking coffee cups on one another. It's sort of like a mountain. Now, we all know that garbage needs to go out. But who's going to do it? Ah, they hire somebody for that. They'll have to get it after second service. Oh, I'm a CEO in my business. I don't empty garbage cans. That's not my thing. Somebody else should do it. Greatness is found in how low you go, how much you are willing to serve, no matter what your title is, no matter what your position is. We take the garbage out. Greatness is found by those who come early to set up. The greatness is found in those who stay late to clean up. But the greatest position of all in the church every Sunday is the church nursery. I have seen some of those diapers that your children make. And trust me, that is about as low as you go. You know, but it's true. Greatness is found in going low in being willing to serve others. Not in saying, I'm going to go high because I have a position that is over others. So greatness is found in serving others in the church nursery. You know why it's this way? Because pride and holding our rights over others, that's the devil's MO, wasn't it? He's going to be proud and he wanted worship and adulation for him. Jesus, who holds the number one position, demonstrated humility. And what does it look like? He went from the top to be on the bottom. And he died on the cross. But not just died on the cross, but he absorbed all of our filth, absorbed all of our sin when he died. That's far worse than one of the diapers in the nursery. He absorbed all of our ugliness and died for it. That's going low, my friends. But the scriptures would say that's where greatness was found. 
In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Therefore God has exalted him to the highest position and given him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus everyone should bow. Folks, that's the pattern we follow. Greatness is found not in holding our position, but it's found in going low and serving others, and therefore God honors those who follow in the pathway of Jesus. So pride ruins relationships. Pride, it it takes away honor, because humility is what gets us honor. But pride also separates us from God. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, and he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. The parallel account about this passage in Luke tells us this child was standing beside Jesus. So what we have here is a child that is old enough to stand up, but also still young enough to be picked up. There is something unique about a child in this age that Jesus is calling us to attention, calling our attention to. Because notice he says here, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you something to circle. Whoever receives one such child. Circle the word such. Because at first, it sounds like he's just talking about children. But he's talking about more than just children. He's talking about those who are like this child. What kind of quality would there be about a child who is old enough to stand up, yet young enough to pick up that Jesus is keying into here. Let's mentally explore this. What are children in that age group like? Human pinballs. They never stop moving. Mom and dad, they never can sit on the couch because their children are always getting into something and they're chasing them down. It's a terror to walk across the Walmart parking lot unless you have them in your hand because you know they will go and play in traffic. You go to try to feed them. Half of the food ends up in their mouth. Who knows where the other half of the food went? It's, yeah, it's going everywhere. You get up in the morning, you don't just have to like make the bed, you have to check the bed because they may have wet it during the night. When you have a child who's old enough to stand up, yet young enough to pick up, it is constant service. It is constant giving. It's a child in a very high-maintenance stage. When they get a little older, they can control themselves, and you can direct them and do things, but not then. But did you ever notice that that high-maintenance stage of a child is not just true of young children? but it can also be true of adults. That there are some people that we have relationships with, not that we don't love them, but it just takes a lot more relational energy to be with them. A lot more relational energy to serve them. Maybe it's because they're in a different age group than we are. Maybe it's because they have different habits and ways of doing things than, than we do. It just is a little more draining to be with them than fulfilling to be with them. And Jesus says here, whoever receives one such as this kind of child ends up receiving me. It's pride. 
pride in our life that says, I only want to be with people that are like me. I only want to be with people that I get along with and get energy out of. But in humility, we should say, I don't just have to be with people that are like me. I want to be with people that even would be draining to me and to serve them. Now notice here, there's an interesting payout that goes with it. Jesus says, when anyone serves a child such as this, he receives me, and also, he says, he says, um, receives not just me, but him who sent me. What he's saying is when we, in humility, serve others that may be a little bit more difficult to get along with, there's a reward that goes with it. The reward is you have a deeper experience of Jesus and of God the Father. Those who in pride avoid serving and being with people who are a little different than them, unfortunately, they don't have a deeper experience of Jesus and God the Father. But those who in humility embrace those who are a little different than them, welcome them. The payout is they will have a deeper experience of Jesus and a deeper experience of God the Father. The question is, how do we put this one into practice? So I thought about it. I would give you a football illustration at the front. We'll give you a football illustration in the middle. Tis the season, it's fall. Well, you know what it's like on Sundays and during football season. We go home, we get out the hot wings, we get out the Cheetos, the nachos, we're going to have a good spread, we're going to watch the game, and we're going to invite our friends over and kick up our feet and sit on the couch. But in pride, sometimes, we only want to invite over those people who are just like us, those people who give emotional and relational energy to us. How about practicing humility and inviting people that aren't just like us, that are our brothers and sisters in Christ, that may actually drain a little bit of our emotional energy? But that's okay. There's a payout, isn't there? The payout is, Jesus says, I promise you will experience me deeper and you will know my Father more. There's a reward for this humility. That brings us to the next point. Pride creates an attitude of exclusivity. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not um, against us is for us. So the Apostle John had sort of a flashback at this point. Oh, I remember a guy out there who was casting out demons in your name. Don't worry, Jesus. We put a stop to him. Which I think is sort of ironic because what did they just fail to do last week? What couldn't they cast out last week? A demon. They couldn't cast out a demon last week, and here's a guy who is not even part of their group who successfully cast out a demon. I think they're jealous. But John says, we put a stop to him because he wasn't part of our little group. He says, why did you put a stop to him? No one could do a mighty work in my name unless he was legitimately in a relationship with me. The reason they put a stop to him was because of their pride. Because they thought 
that Jesus could only work through them and their little group. Here's the first bullet point for you. When we think God only works through us and our group, that reveals that we have a narrow and prideful heart. It's true. The next thing Jesus says is, don't just put, you shouldn't have put a stop to him, but don't you realize whoever is not against us is for us? The idea is, Jesus says, there's only two sides out there, guys. There's only Satan and his demons. That's the one we're fighting against. The rest of us should be working together to fight against him, not fighting against each other. This is the second point for you in the bullets. We must remember there are only two sides. Fight Satan, who is the enemy, not other Christians who are on the same team. Now, this obviously, this principle has great application for us in the modern church today. There are other churches in town that maybe does things a little differently. How do we treat them? How do we think about them? It's narrow-minded pride that lets us think that the only work God is doing in this community is under our logo and under our banner. Jesus is working through a variety of churches. Our narrow-minded pride can give us the inability to celebrate with other churches when they do have success. Remember, we are not fighting other churches. We are together fighting Satan. Let us not be narrow-minded and proud and try and avoid other churches and avoid other Christians. Now, granted that I just said that, there are really two ditches that you have to avoid when it comes to churches working together. Here is the first ditch, which we just covered. Avoid the ditch of narrow-minded theological precision that breaks relationships with other believers and churches into little groups that do not work together. There's other churches out there who practice communion a little differently. They practice worship a little differently. They practice baptism a little differently. But they love Jesus. So we can celebrate that. We're all working on the same team against the same enemy. But here's the other ditch to avoid. Going to the other side. Avoid the ditch of open-mindedness that doesn't understand the reasons for different denominations and churches. All denominations should not be collapsed into one. All churches should not be collapsed into one. Even though we are united around Jesus, it's legitimate to have different denominations and different churches. Let me explain to you why. One of the people I ran across when I was studying for this message described it this way. What are the different tiers of Christian connection? Tier one is this. Is somebody a Christian or a non-Christian? Does the person or church possess the essentials of the faith? While they may be different than me, will they be in heaven with me? The essentials of the faith boil down to this. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the solution. Can we agree on that? 
If you can't agree on that, then you're not going to be in heaven. That's like the real basic. Most churches believe that. But there is a tier two. This is where you have differences between different denominations. Does this person or church differ from me on the way I believe the Bible talks about church life and Christian life? If you're taking notes, circle church life, circle Christian life. While a church or individual will be in heaven, it is valid to see the practice of the Christian faith differently. Some churches believe you should take communion every week. Other churches believe you can take it once a month. Some churches believe communion has a spiritual blessing, which is just bread and and the cup. Others believe that the bread and the cup literally becomes the body and, and blood of Jesus Christ. Some churches believe you can baptize infants. Other churches believe you should only baptize adult believers and you can dedicate infants. Some uh, churches are pacifists. They refuse to get involved in the army and the war. Other churches are thankful to be involved in the army and being part of God's light and presence in that area. Some churches believe that when John talks about avoiding worldliness, that means you should always wear black, you can't have zippers, you should live on a farm, and you should plow with a horse. And then there's other Christians who will be with you in heaven like you and me, who have computers and drive SUVs. You know, it's legitimate to say we don't all have to be collapsed into one church when it comes to the way you practice the Christian life and the way you practice the Christian faith. Yes, we agree on the big picture of Jesus, but we can be divided on the the practice of the Christian life. But probably the biggest division is this. Some churches hold a very low view of this book. Other churches hold a very high view of this book. And that's oftentimes one of the reasons the different denominations exist. We hold a very high view of this book and we refuse to collapse into a denomination that held a very low view of this book. And that's where we draw the line, even though we have Christian brothers and sisters. Now, tier three differences. Tier three differences in church are what I call non-essential differences. Does a person differ from me on non-essential debatable matters that are acceptable? There are areas in Christian life where we can agree to disagree, but still lock arms for Christ in the same church. I'll give you an example of that. Homeschooling. Some parents are very passionate about homeschooling. You must homeschool your child. Other people are like, you know, public school is okay. We have a decent public school. But it's one of those things where we can agree to disagree on that, can't we? And still be in the church, same church family? So, what we see is um, you have to avoid these two ditches. The ditch of being too narrow-minded that thinks that God's only working through us and our little banner. But we also have to avoid the ditch of being too open-minded and thinking there's no legitimate reason for different denominations. One final point at the end. Jesus promises every humble act of service will be rewarded. In the 41st verse, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink to you because you long to Christ will by no means lose his reward. These guys have been looking for rewards. They've been looking for the payout. And here's what Jesus says. Guys, there is no payout for pride. 
There is no payout for thinking you're better than others or treating yourself as if you're greater than others. But there's always a payout in humility. There's always a payout for going low, humbling yourself and serving others, even if it's the littlest thing, like simply giving a cup of water, not even cold water, not even a Gatorade, to serve somebody. God the Father notices it, God the Father remembers it, and He promises to reward you for it. God always rewards the humble. He always rewards those who serve. We started off with Andre Haysworth, a man who said, I'm proud, I don't like to lose, and I'll stomp on your face. He ended at the, up at the very bottom of the NFL. But I'd like to give you a different hero. A hero who said, I'm humble. I will choose to lose. I will choose to experience something far worse than somebody stomping on my face. I'll die on the cross and like a sponge, soak in all the filth of your sin. And as a result, he didn't end up in the bottom. He was given the place of highest honor by God the Father at the top. See, that's the way God's kingdom works. The way up for each of us is the way down. The way up is not pride. It's in humility to serve one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and want to confess that pride so often seeps into our relationships, into our life. Sometimes we think of ourselves as better than others. And that pride ruins our friendships. That pride can ruin our marriage. That pride can even ruin our church. Father, sometimes we let that pride um, separate us from other people that are not just like us, that are a little different than us. And when we just want to hang around with people that we get along with really easily, we realize that we lose the payoff of knowing you deeply and knowing you richly. Father, I thank you that for every act of humility, every act of kind service, that you see it, you notice it, you remember it, and you promise to reward it. Now I ask that you'd help us to have Jesus as our hero, the one who went low in humility, thought of us as better than himself, and as a result was given the position of highest in the universe because the way up in your kingdom is always the way down. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.